Well, I'm delighted to be talking today with Kristen Van de Biesenbos from the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law and Haskane School of Business. We'll be talking today about her article, which is titled The Rebirth of Social License, that's been published in the McGill Journal of Sustainable Development Law. Now, social license is a term that may not be very familiar to uh, Americans, but it is a very important buzzword uh, within Canadian politics and increasingly internationally. And to a first approximation, people often use it to mean, is an energy project popular enough that it's going to be built? Or, you know, regardless of whether it has the permits it needs, is it going to avoid the kind of protests, uh, lawsuits, and a social turmoil that will ever that will prevent the project from ever being built. Uh, as Kristen will explain, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that, and her article has a lot to say about what a social license means, uh, what it should mean, and how to use it as a useful uh, method going forward of thinking about some of the downsides uh, and upsides of energy development. So. With that probably inarticulate introduction, uh, Kristen, could you first start by just explaining for Americans what is this term social license and how what do people mean when they say it? Uh, well, thank you first for that introduction, James. And also, I think you did a really good job of explaining what I think most people in Canada believe that social license means. Uh, but as you mentioned, my article is is kind of saying, Actually, the term originates uh, in the mining industry, and it specifically referred to measures that were taken by mining companies to try to win over local communities. Uh, this was something that mining companies ran into quite a lot when they were working sort of abroad in places with weak rule of law. They would get a legal license to mine in a particular place, and they'd show up with all their mining equipment, getting ready to start work. This is going to be great. And they would run into sometimes violent community resistance. And so in order to try to win over this community, which had no trust in the central government that had given them the legal license, these mining companies would take certain measures to try to get community buy-in. And uh, that actually became known by in the mining community as the social license to operate, meaning to contrast it with the legal license to be there, which you get from a government. So that's what it originally was supposed to refer to. Okay, and you say that, in the article, you say that social license isn't really a useful term anymore, uh, in part because people mean different things, but I think there's more to your argument than that. So could you just give me a couple examples of how people are using this term, social license, and why you think that's not helpful? Yeah, I, the reason I think it's not helpful is because it's it's used in so many ways now, sort of in, in public discourse and, and by political figures and, and activists on both sides of sort of um, fossil fuel project debates, that it has kind of lost its usefulness. It's, it, it's used to mean so many things that it basically means nothing now. And I can give you two examples. One, um, here in Alberta, the previous government, uh, what, which was the um, – the New Democrats, they were led by Premier Rachel Notley. One of the things that Premier Notley tried to do in order to win uh, public acceptance from the rest of Canada for the oil sands here was to pass a series of very, actually, uh, progressive environmental regulations. And she did it because she thought she could get that public thumbs up from the rest of Canada for the oil sands. And she referred to that as getting the social license for Alberta's fossil fuel industry. She thought she could get people to uh, 
sort of give it a check mark if she also showed that Alberta was very serious about protecting the environment and fighting climate change. Uh, and also that did not work. It managed to sort of not work comprehensively. It didn't actually win anybody over. Studies have shown or, or polls have shown that most Canadians actually are in support of pipelines or else they're sort of, they don't really care about pipelines that much. But there is like some very vocal opposition to pipelines. Um, some people protest them on environmental grounds, some on climate change grounds. Uh, some are indigenous groups who are protesting putting those projects through indigenous land or claimed land. Um, and they didn't feel any differently about the impact of those pipelines on the things that they care about because of Alberta's new environmental law. So this idea that you could win social license, meaning that you could win over all these groups that are in opposition to pipelines or other energy projects for a variety of reasons, turned out to not be possible. Another example of the use of social license is, you know, um, Current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on a couple of occasions has referred to social license in the sense of winning over broad public approval for energy projects, especially fossil fuel projects. Um, and I think that, you know, from my perspective, the problem with using the concept of social license this way, which I do think is people thinking that they're going to get um, no more protests no more lawsuits, no more, you know, provincial governments of neighboring provinces like British Columbia declaring that, you know, whatever it takes, they'll stop this, which is what, you know, British Columbia current premier John Horgan has said about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which is one of the things that Alberta was trying to get the social license for by passing all of these um, environmental laws. Right. And, and just for and for listeners who may not know that Trans Mountain Pipeline was a pipeline designed to take uh, – oil from the oil sands in northern Alberta to the coast of British Columbia. So just through those two provinces, uh, through from Alberta to the coast in British Columbia, and the government of British Columbia uh, has been, has declared its firm opposition to having this pipeline built. That's right. It's also a, a twinning pipeline or, or an expansion pipeline. So right. there's already a pipeline there, and the idea was to 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 increase the capacity by building another pipeline along the same route. Uh, yeah, that is uh, – Alberta has a problem with the bottleneck for its fossil fuels, especially the oil from the oil sands. It's difficult to get it to refineries. That oil is heavy oil, so it has to be refined before it can be used commercially. Um, and so it needs to be able to get to – refining facilities to be able to be sold. And, uh, yeah, there there aren't enough pipelines anyway. So building more pipelines has been a very pressing issue for successive governments in Alberta, and it is becoming increasingly difficult to do. Um, and, and I think using this idea of social license, even though originally it's supposed to, and, and I argue in my paper, it should be seen only as referring to community buy-in. When I say buy-in, I don't necessarily mean that you have to get every single person in a community on board, but I do mean that the community is sharing benefits in some way. You've, you've, you as the energy company have approached the community and you have worked out a way with representatives of the community to make sure that this community is somehow feeling that it's not just being asked to shoulder the burden of having an energy project there, but it's also receiving some kind of benefit. And for yeah, most I, communities, that's really the central problem that they have. Some communities are more concerned about the environmental, environmental impact but as you know, James, sometimes people, I mean, any type of energy project, whether it's wind, solar, fossil fuel, can be the subject of intense community resistance. But a lot of times it's because people in a community see how this is going to negatively impact them. 
and they don't see what the upside is going to be. They'll be asked to put up with all of the negative impacts of these projects, but ultimately the benefits of those projects are intended for someone else or some other population that's farther away. Right. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. You know, and you, you referred to Prime Minister Trudeau kind of endorsing mm-hmm. this idea of social license. Uh, I, I think in the paper you quote when he said, well, governments can grant permits, but only communities can grant permission. Now, right. that, that seems to be a strong endorsement of the so, social license idea, but I think your idea is a little bit different than that, right? And so how would you say your idea is different from what uh, – Prime Minister Trudeau was uh, was stating in terms of what social license is. When you say that only a community can grant permission, you sort of are implying that they can also withhold it. And if they withhold permission, then you cannot go ahead with an energy project there. And that is, so that's referred to giving a community a veto. And in neither Canada or the United States are communities understood to have a veto over energy projects, at least not from a legal perspective. They don't actually have the legal power to stop an energy project, to somehow override or revoke a license that's been granted by some higher level of government, whether it's provincial or federal. So I don't think that what – I don't even think that Prime Minister Trudeau meant what he said when he said that. It sounded good. But not even he meant it. I don't think anybody actually thinks that a community should be able to stop it. Now, sometimes they they stop it by being able to cause so many delays on a project that it becomes so expensive to wait for the project proponent that they eventually give up. And that is the strategy that some communities that are very opposed to energy projects will employ. But there isn't actually a community veto. And I don't argue that there should be. Uh, because it creates regulatory uncertainty. There really should be one government that's in charge of citing things, whether it's provincial or federal or in the U.S., state or federal. And to give communities that kind of power, I think, creates some very problematic impact. It sounds good at first, but when you really dig into it, that can start to create some really, you know, you have problems where low-income communities end up bearing the burden of most of these projects because they don't, they, they don't think that they have any real economic alternative. And so that would be a race to the bottom that's one of the impacts that you could have from letting communities have a veto. So I don't agree with the Prime Minister Trudeau that that's it. But I do think that communities should be consulted with, and I do think that energy companies to do, should do what they can to try to get that community buy-in. And that, to me, is the social license to operate. Okay. And what you say that uh, a term that's important for both you and for uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's vision of social license is this one of communities. And so what does communities mean to you? Does it because does it mean the province? Does it mean mm-hmm. the uh does it mean, you know, a local um, you know, indigenous group in, in the US we'd say Indian tribes and the uh in Canada you'd say First Nations groups um or does it does it mean every city, or does it go to a more local level than that, every neighborhood? Uh, what do you think counts as the uh, communities that mm-hmm. need buy-in under your vision of social license? So to me, the communities that you would need buy-in from in order to win the social license to operate would be any community that doesn't have the ability to issue or not or reject the application for a legal license from an energy proponent. Because to me, uh, social license to operate is an important check on the lack of power that communities in in Canada have to really do anything about the siting of energy projects. Um, So that would be 
cities certainly uh, don't actually have the legal authority to stop energy projects. Um, if you're familiar with Trans Mountain, you know that a very affluent city like Burnaby, which is a suburb of uh, Vancouver in British Columbia, it, does, it doesn't have the legal power to stop it, but it does have the political power to put pressure on political leaders to respond to the community's concern. But technically, Burnaby, like any other city in Canada, doesn't actually have the legal authority to stop or really alter um, a pipeline project. Uh, so that would be – so cities I would include, towns, smaller municipalities, just because a place is small and doesn't have very many residents doesn't mean that you shouldn't be trying to consult with them and address their concerns. Uh, and that does also include Indigenous communities. So I would include First, Na First Nations, but also Inuit and Métis. And, of course, the situation gets more complex in Canada when you're talking about treaty versus non-treaty bans. But I think that if you're on claimed land, and this is certainly the experience in Canada, even if you are trying to put an energy project like a pipeline through an area that's not subject to a treaty, so legally um, the indigenous people living there don't have a specific claim on the land, but they do from their perspective, right? It's unceded land. They never gave up their rights. They don't have a treaty. To them, the land is still theirs. Um, you should probably consult with them. <laughs> and also, if it's a linear project like a pipeline, you may have a lot of communities that you have to talk to but as daunting as that may sound, it is actually something that energy companies do on a regular basis, especially internationally, when they're doing work in a country that signed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Because if the country has signed UNDRIP, then that means they've agreed that the standard of consultation required from Indigenous groups by energy companies is free prior and informed consent. So energy companies, the big ones especially, that do a lot of international work are very good at doing this kind of community consultation. But if they don't have to do it, they might not want to do it because it is time-consuming and it's expensive. But I think what we're seeing in Canada and in some places in the United States is that the sentiment against energy projects has become high enough that it's becoming something that even though, again, social license is not a legal license and it's not a legal requirement that you engage with these communities except in Canada with Indigenous communities, but it is something that I think, practically speaking, you do need to do as an energy project proponent. Yeah, and that is a, a one tricky aspect of this, which is that Canada has committed to uh, to implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP, uh, but, and that includes the standard that development can only happen with the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples. Now, one question I have about that is how – so you say that there's no veto on these mm -hmm. uh, on these projects. How is that consistent with free prior and informed consent? Uh, you know, this is a I, – I should say that I'm giving you this question, but this is a big question for yeah. natural resource development around the world, but I think it would be helpful mm -hmm. if you just said a few words about how those two things are consistent. But internationally, it's also true that even though the standard that's set by the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is free, prior, and informed consent, the Declaration also makes clear that there is no veto. So that is a great question. How, how can the standard be free, prior, and informed consent, and yet you don't need to have it to go ahead? And to me, I think the answer is what it means is that you as the energy project proponent must do everything within reason, which of course is a question that is difficult to answer. But within reason, you must do everything you can to get that free, prior, and informed consent. So it means no coercion, 
no bribery, no trying to threaten people uh, within a community. It means that you do it before the project is going to take place, sometimes before you even have the legal license. And it means that you have to be open and honest with, it, with these communities about what exactly is going to happen and what the impacts will be on them. If you do all of those things, I think you've met the standard. And so if the community still says no after all of that, you could technically still go ahead if you have the legal license. Okay, so this is uh, this work is very interesting because you're you are actually building on work that you've done in the United States. You have this mm -hmm. article that came out in the Tulane Law Review uh, just last year that was called "Contracted Fracking," but basically mm -hmm. it was about you know oil and gas companies working with local communities um, to uh, you know mitigate some of the impacts, provide of their development, uh, provide some economic benefits. And uh, as a result, have you know more community buy-in. Now, so one uh, one question I have for you as you translate that work on kind of upstream oil and gas development to some of the controversies that are happening in Canada about you know midstream pipeline energy transport is um, is there a problem that when you have to get buy-in not just from one community where you're doing oil and gas development, but from every community along mm -hmm. the path of an energy transport project, that creates kind of too many veto gates. So in other words, mm -hmm. you know, you could have a situation where, you know, you have agreements with uh, dozens of indigenous groups that would benefit them if a pipeline was built, but if one or two object, then all of a sudden you don't really have social license uh, to go forward and all those other groups miss out. Is there a particular problem for that kind of linear infrastructure? Well, I, so I don't think that communities actually have a veto because if they did, the answer is absolutely yes. That would be a major problem. Um, and that has been, I think, a source of tension in both the U.S. and Canada, this sense that in some cases for linear projects like electricity transmission lines and oil and gas pipelines, that it's these more affluent communities or indigenous groups that are that are protesting, whereas other communities are saying, we want this. You know, we see a benefit here, or perhaps we've even signed an agreement that says we're going to get a benefit and we want it. Stop standing in our way. Um, and I think that's kind of just the nature of the linear project. Because it goes through so many communities, each one of those communities is equally entitled to that, to at least, you know, have the – the attempt by the energy company to get that buy-in. But again, my position is they don't have to get it. They do have to make a good faith effort to get it, but they don't have to get it because I don't think that there is a community veto. Or there's, I don't think there's, I mean, there isn't, and I don't think there should be. Right. And so, you know, in fact, your article is titled The Rebirth of Social License, and you yes. define it in this way that it's not about a veto, that it's about, uh, instead, that it's about, community buy-in and you think that the idea of social license can have some it can have some benefit unlike this confused way that right. people discuss it currently where it sounds like a veto you say it has benefit if you think about it as uh, you know instead the process of trying uh, to provide some benefits to local communities so that there's some buy-in uh, from those communities Exactly, because I do think that benefit sharing is important. I do think there is a fundamental unfairness in asking communities to to bear that burden, the negative impacts of energy projects, 
uh, especially for the linear projects, but other projects too, where ultimately the benefit of this project is not going to be felt within the community. So if you're asking a community to put up with all of those sort of negative impacts, I do think that you should start talking about how is there a way to share those benefits. And so to me, that's always been, you know, I'm originally from the New Orleans area, and I saw a lot of communities that were very much dependent on the oil and gas industry, but they didn't necessarily, they worked for the oil and gas industry a lot of the time, so they were dependent on them in that sense. But the communities themselves, especially in places where there were refineries or chemical facilities, they were putting up with quite a lot of, you know, negative impacts, um, and in some cases, some um what's the right way to put it, bad faith by some of these mm-hmm. companies. Um, and they they had no they had no way to advocate for themselves. There was no sense that you needed to talk to these communities. There was no idea that you needed to compensate them for what they were experiencing, for the negative impacts they were experiencing. And that always struck me as wrong, just because there is an economic benefit to sort of the larger area, which in the case of Louisiana is the state of Louisiana. That doesn't mean I don't think that the communities that are being asked to experience the brunt of some of these negative impacts, which sometimes are not too bad, but sometimes they can be bad. And so I think there should be a discussion, too, about if everyone in this sort of like larger area is going to get this benefit, how can you make sure that that's actually felt by the people who have these projects in their communities for the benefit of the rest of us? Well, I think that that's a very, you know, attractive vision of how social license could be a useful term because in some ways – you have uh, squared the circle that otherwise might exist or at least resolved some of the tension that might exist between the idea of social license and the rule of law, right? Because some people would say, well, social license is the opposite of the rule of law because it says even if you have all the legal permits you need, somebody can stop a project that's been approved by the government. And you're not saying that. Instead, you're saying that uh, social license should be more about, you know, community buy-in that increases, uh, you know, disperses benefits in a way that's, you know, more, um, more parallel with the impacts of the project. No, I, I, one thing I wondered about about that though is that often when I hear the term social license, it's by people, it's from people whose primary concern is climate change, and mm-hmm. if if your primary concern is climate change, in some ways the local impact of the project really isn't what you're concerned about, right? You don't mm-hmm. care if it runs, you know, under this stream or that stream or if you have to cut down a couple trees for it over here or over there, the question is, you know, are you enabling more fossil fuel production? Um, I wonder what your concept of uh, social license has to offer to people whose main concern is climate change. I think there is a good, compelling argument that in Canada anyway, for both federal and provincial projects, um, energy projects, there is confusion about where and how you should weigh climate change considerations of a particular project. If you're looking at a pipeline, for example, do you consider the climate change impacts of just the pipeline, which are probably minimal, or do you connect them with increased production from the extraction site, like the oil sands, which could be much greater? Those are sort of some unanswered questions. Those are questions, I think, that elected leaders need to be called to account for, 
And that's the place where I think people who are concerned about climate change should focus their efforts. You have ways of putting pressure on your elected leaders that can have an impact on that, maybe not as fast as we would all like. But I think that's where people should be focusing their efforts. Um, I don't think that using terms like social license to try to suggest that there's some kind of organized, large-scale public resistance to particular projects and that that should somehow negate the legal license, that that would be, I think, very problematic because that does sound like something that could be construed as working against the rule of law. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. This has been uh, this has been fascinating, <laughs> and uh, I look forward to talking with you about future work. Well, thank you, James.